So now you've got this little machine in your head that's starting to think for you. But it doesn't think the same way as you. You think rationally and logically. This little bit of brain thinks emotionally and catastrophically. From the Outpost, this is List Envy, the podcast where I work with a special guest to build a top five list on a topic they choose. Uh, It is also the show about the joy of discovery. I haven't yet. I'm A-B testing my intro, as you might be able to tell. My name is Mark Stedman, and it is a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, This week's guest is... Editor and freelance journalist Elisa Litzer, who is uh, what you might describe as a serial self-improver or a serial knowledge gatherer. Uh, We talked about um, life-changing books and the wonders that can be found in uh, the non-fiction section or the the reference section. And uh, as someone who's picked up a lot of uh, self-help books in his day, um, usually on Audible, uh, I I could relate. So uh, we uh, we had a great chat. The audio quality isn't great on this one, so I do apologise. I think we had some uh, a a big old fan in the background, but um, that's that's just what happens with the the remote recording life, uh, as you know. But uh, it's it's a lovely chat and and I think uh, well worth a listen, um, especially if you're looking for some more listens uh, or, or some more reads, of course. Uh, so uh, this is Elisa Litsa and our top five list of subtly life-changing books, which begins with a discussion on non-fiction in Elisa's early life. So I've always been a bookworm, ever since, you know, since forever. Uh, and for the most part of my childhood, since I was about, until I was about 15, I only read non-fiction. Um, I don't know why fiction never appealed to me. And I would just leaf through. I had a phase where I would read fine art magazines like back to back when I was about nine. Um, then I learned sign language from a book and I learned hieroglyphs from another book. Um, and it was just, I never really read full books. I always went to like different books that I was interested in and I picked the topics I was interested in. And then I stopped for some reason. I don't know why. I just discovered fiction and then I never looked back. And recently, I uh, started reading nonfiction again and I realized how much I missed it and how, how much it can change me um, and how much it can improve my life. So I feel like that is rare among someone at a young age to gravitate towards nonfiction. Yeah, definitely. It was, uh, it was a bit strange. Like a lot of my friends, I remember they, they thought I was very well read, which I was, but I never really had a like, large number of books that I read. It was just whatever I felt like I was interested in. So how, how would it work? Would you just sort of browse the shelves at the library and just think, yes, I want to learn about hieroglyphics? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, with my mum being a teacher as well, I had access to a lot of, of books and material and stuff. Um, so I just picked whatever I felt like reading. Are you the kind of person when people are having a chat where you've got like, you've got a sort of a fact or a bit of like a nugget of knowledge for kind of any situation? Um, yeah. Yeah, most of the times. It, it, it went a bit rusty. I used to do that <laughs> back when I used to really be into nonfiction. Um, and then not so much in the past few years. But yeah, I, I, do, I do still have that tendency. <laughs> it's a good tendency, I think. Um, what, yeah. <laughs> is, what fiction do you enjoy then? Um, well, it used to be... At first it used to be thrillers and such, because it was so, just so entertaining. Um, then contemporary fiction um, was around for a while. Um, I never really enjoyed fantasy or, or anything like that, um, anything grounded in reality. That seems in keeping. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And lately, especially with the pandemic and everything, I felt like I needed something more uplifting. So I've been really into queer romances. Have you got any, are you into any sort of, 
is there like a no books done of franchises but like is there a series of books that you're you're really into um i really like the di helen grace series by mj Arledge. it's a, a thriller series but it's it's a very unconventional thriller series it's very it's borderline horror to be honest um so good because of the character development because you learn to sympathize with the killers and it's it's really interesting in that respect that sounds fascinating actually have you read any karen slaughter um i have yeah i read pretty girls a few months ago and it was wow like i still have some imagery in my head yeah i i i started uh one of the i think because i like to go back like if it's a series i want to start from the first one um and I, I did, and I, I only got so far. This, I, I realised yesterday I was cycling through my um, Audible, uh, like, you know, virtual bookshelf, and I hadn't realised how many books I'd either started and abandoned or I'd gotten nearly all the way through. Like, I've, I've, I hadn't realised I hadn't finished Mick Heron's Down Cemetery Way because I ploughed through all of the... Um, the Slough House books, you know, I loved, loved the Slough House books. Uh, and then I just wanted more Mick Heron because I love his style. And I, uh, yeah, it wasn't until like towards the, when I was looking yesterday, I was like, I never actually finished that book. I've got a few of these that I need to, I need to tidy up some loose ends. Have you got any tips? Um, <laughs> for finishing books. Yeah, <laughs> for remembering uh, to finish, because I keep starting other books and then I forget about the, yeah, well, the ones that I've got. Uh, my favourite thing to do when that happens is to sort of alternate between genres or, or something like that. So usually when I feel like DNFing a book, it's, it usually puts me in a slump for weeks. Mm. So to prevent that, and also because I don't like letting th- things unfinished, I just go and eat, read something easy for a change and then I usually feel like returning to that book after a while. I like that actually. I like I like the notion of if you're going to pick up another book it should be a, a different genre because then it's not like you're substituting one thriller book for another so you you have got those those two different flavors. I think that makes sense. That's a good tip. Um so in the category of subtly life-changing books, uh, non-fiction books, what would have to be, what is number one for you that absolutely has to make the list? Um, so that's um, Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long Happy Life. Okay. Tell me about that. Well, it's, oh my God, it's probably, it's in top 10 favourite books of all time for me. I read it a few months ago. Um, I think I read it at the right time as well because I, was, I, was feeling, I wasn't feeling my best. Mm-hmm. Um, emotionally and I'd realized reading that book that I was because I'm usually a very positive person I'm the kind of person who just sees the glass full even when it's empty um and I'd I'd ceased to be like that um and so I found this book and I realized um so it's a book about longevity and it's um longevity is something I've always been interested in I, I've always wanted to to leave up to the, the age of 100 I don't know why. I never knew why until I, yeah. And I realized that we have so much control over our, our lifespan. Obviously, you know, unless, you know, an unfortunate accident or something happens. Um, but you, you have so much control over your lifespan and it doesn't have, you don't have to be health obsessed. You don't have to be a fitness guru. You don't have to eat organic necessarily. Thank God for that. Yeah, exactly. So this book is basically, they, um, the authors did a study um, on the community of Okinawa in Japan 
which is the longest living community in the world. They're called supercentenarians. A lot of these people um, have lived beyond the age of 110. How? Yeah, and they're still very much alive and active and well. Um, the main idea with this book is that you need a reason to keep living. That's basically when you give up, that's when your cells start to age and give up as well. Um, so that, that's what Ikigai means, basically, in Japanese. It means a reason for being, more or less, it's a concept. And these people, they don't have such, like, it's, that's what's interesting about it. You don't have to want to be a CEO or, I don't know, build a house or any, like, big things. It's, it's the little things, you know, if you want to, I don't know, maintain your garden or, or whatever, or make a friend or go to a dance, that's very much as uh, valuable and as valid as any big purpose in life. And it's all about not giving up. You just keep wanting to do something for yourself. And these people, it's what they do. They're active um, all the time. They're not exactly, you know, running <laughs> uh, on the treadmill or doing anything like that. They just, they dance. They, they spend a lot of time in the gardens um, with their communities. And that's, it's just, it was very, it was an awakening moment for me because I realized, yeah, that's actually what might do it for me <laughs> so did it help you find that that reason for it sounds dark but that reason for living that reason for longevity did it help you sort of discover that it's um well more or less it helped me realize that i had much more sort of versions of ikigai in my life than i'd realized it made me um see that every single little thing that i did towards a bigger purpose actually counted so you know if for instance i'm looking for a flat right now and that's that's a big thing. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize, I, I don't know, I was saving up or something for this. And it, it counted so much and it kept me going because it was an ambition. Or I have some fitness goals that I want to uh, achieve. I have some academic goals that I want to achieve. And, you know, my little 15-minute workout that I do sometimes, I never really saw that as such a big deal. I guess that's how it made me regain my positivity because I started seeing the meaning in everything I did again. That's wonderful. And I can, yeah, I can see how life-changing that would be. Wow. I think that is that. I mean, that's not subtle. Wow. Um, okay. I'm going to go with uh, my number one is The Chimp Paradox uh, by Professor Steve Peters. Are you familiar with this? Um, I heard of it, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> so it's, um, it's a very accessible sort of pop psychology not pop psychology it's 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 better than that but it's a very accessible um kind of self-help book that gives you a sense of how the parts of your brain that want to keep you protected can also be the most frustrating to live with and how you manage those aspects so how you deal with nervous energy how you deal with uh situations where you feel under threat you know the fight or flight response that kind of thing um so it's all about as as he puts it taming your chimp um it's it's a chimp isn't good or bad it doesn't have good or bad intentions it's just a chimp um and his whole thing is you don't have to take the blame for what your chimp does but you take responsibility in the same way that if your dog bites someone you didn't bite that person, but you are responsible for the dog. Um, and so it sort of, it helps you be easier on yourself without negating the responsibility that you have as a human being. And um, there are a few metaphors that get mixed, I think. He, he goes into planets and there's a computer and all sorts of different things. But 
I, I think possibly there are a few sort of mixed metaphors, but the idea behind it, um, the, the I, I started reading that in 2019 after it was recommended to me several times uh, by my brother, and it suddenly kind of just clicked, and I just went, this is, the, you know, I was in the right place at the, at the right time to sort of be receptive to it. And it had a real a real impact and, and helped me sort of value myself a bit more and put me on a on a road to getting out of a depression that, that, that I was in. And so, yeah, um, subtly changed my life. Yeah, definitely. What would be number two for you? Um, so number two is a very interesting one. Um, it's called The Face by Rosozeki, and it's... Um, it's an experiment. Um, it's a very, very short nonfiction, and it's basically a record. So the, the author did this experiment where she stared at herself in the mirror for a few hours. I can't remember whether it was three or five hours. She And she recorded everything. She recorded oh, wow. every single thought. Yeah, that came to mind. It was, wow, I just, honestly, it's everything from, you know, noticing like small little black heads or whatever, pores, to reflecting on her heritage, her origins, um, and everything in between. It was just so refreshing. Um, you know, she went from beauty standards to um, her childhood, to her father's death, to, you know, what she took from both her parents. She's also mixed race as well, and she's a Buddhist priest as well, so she um, sort of intertwined some, some Buddhist knowledge as well in there. Um, it's really, really interesting, and it made me realize I never actually look in the mirror to see myself that much. I just check the overall image if you know if there's anything to be fixed. As a woman, as well, it's it's a lot. There's a lot more pressure to keep looking at yourself, keep checking yourself, and um, it just made me realize that I never really noticed like the shape of my eyes, for instance. So I don't know if anything was you know asymmetrical what what my forehead looks like <laughs> it's just yeah um i never noticed the details and i think it's excruciating as well to think she she did it for five hours it was just like, the determination that takes i tried at one point and it was oh, i only lasted 10 minutes <laughs> i wanted to go crazy afterwards <laughs> i know because i i feel like you'd start seeing things that weren't there yeah and uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I feel like I'd go a bit. I mean, I've had to look into someone else's face for an extended period of time, and I, I do not like that. Uh, and having to maintain eye contact for ages and not speak—it's horrid. Um, so the thought of doing that to myself I, it doesn't sound like how I want to spend a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it does take a lot of determination, but it does make you feel a certain way I imagine yeah but so what, what what were you what did you get out of it then um well it made me more um aware of, of everything around me because you know if you if you think about the bigger picture it's not really only about staring at yourself in the mirror is it it's about everything around you and it's about you know we're all in a rush I'm always in a rush I never I never stop I feel like mm -hmm. um and it just just makes you pay more attention to detail and it's so such a strong feeling because I, I realized I was actively starting to mark moments in my head. Um, and then a few weeks later, I would remember the specific moments because I acknowledged them in my head um, based on the details around me, like the, the actual physical things I would see. And it's just so powerful because I feel like it, it, like 
it makes you remember your life um, a lot more and makes you yeah, it just makes you reflect on like what you're doing day to day and it, it makes it feel a lot less meaningless oh wow that I, I didn't expect that that felt like an about turn I didn't expect to feel less meaningless oh that's good well, number two for me is going to be Self-Compassion by Kristin Neff. I was recommended this in uh, last, last year, um, around April, I think, last year. And um, this I found to be quite eye-opening. And uh, I, I used to go on, this is, you know, we, we were... Um, actually, it was it was later than uh, later than April because the weather was getting nicer, but we were still in lockdown. Um, and the the rule here was you could have your hours worth of exercise per day. Um, and so I'd go out and I'd do a walk um, for about fifteen minutes and had this sort of same circuit that I would do. And for about a week, um, I spent that time listening to this book, and it just it talks, it describes. It's it's a I think a, a therapist who. Um, describes her realization coming to this this um, these ideas about self compassion versus the things that we've been led to believe about self esteem and self worth. Um, the the problems with the self esteem movement and how damaging that has been to our societies that we think that. Uh, we, you know, how good we are as, or how worthy we are as human beings is based on our output and that kind of stuff. And this helps you reorientate yourself to the idea that you're just worthy of love and compassion because you're a human in the world. And it, there are examples and there are a few of the, and, and it sort of, it also recognises like, if you're not used to this, if this doesn't come naturally to you, then here are some like almost practical tips that you can do to help. And, and, um, I found it. I found it really, uh, really helpful, actually, and um, put, set me on a on a useful path. Actually, as someone who, you know, sometimes you have those moments where you say a thing or you hear something and uh, tend to self tend to obsess over whether you said the right thing or whatever. And being able to sit down with yourself and say, you know, feel to talk to yourself and feel the. Um, have the compassion for the for the that that feeling of of being upset or whatever, and talk yourself through it and counsel yourself through it. Um, I found was um, was really valuable. So yeah, it sounds really good. Compassion, I feel, is such a powerful word as well, and I never really associated compassion with myself. Uh, like I have compassion for so many other things, but with myself, never never thought about it. <laughs> it is it's well worth a look. It really is. Um, I I was quite surprised, and I think for people who perhaps unlike yourself, who struggle being compassionate to other people, I think it, it can also be useful as well. Or if you've had people in your life that are less than, you know, compassionate and perhaps more judgmental, being able to send them this book can be quite, you know, can be quite useful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's my number two. What is your number three? So my number three is um, How to Sleep Well, Everything You Need to Know About Getting a Good Night's Sleep um, by Dr. Chris... Idzikowski, I think it's pronounced. I'm really sorry if I butchered his name. Um, but this uh, book obviously is about sleep health and fixing your sleep cycle. Uh, this time last year, I developed a condition called sleep procrastination. Uh, you basically um, refuse to go to bed, although you feel tired. Ooh. And um, it's um, more so a problem of, of young people, but it's one of the 
most hidden conditions of our society, really, because we associate sleepless nights, nights with success, don't we? It's all about, you know, getting up early or going to bed late or sleeping a couple hours um, and thinking that's enough. And to me, because I was, I was quite in a bad place, but I didn't realize that because of my positivity, it usually my positivity masks a lot of my feelings, even to myself. Yes. Um, and I, I always feel like I'm not entitled to feel down because I, I have everything I could possibly need. I'm, I'm happy, generally. So I didn't realize that I turned it into a, almost like uh, people with eating disorders think that mm -hmm. um, eating and their meals is one of the few things they, can, they, they have control over. That was almost the same with me and sleep. I felt like I could control it. I was finally in control of something. Um, and before I knew it, I, I felt like I didn't want to face the next day. I just wanted to stretch the day as much as possible. Um, and it felt luxurious, like I felt like sleepless nights, like actually not going to bed at all, felt so appealing, it felt so peaceful, although I was absolutely, I was exhausted um, every single morning. So um, ever since I've realized it was actually a condition, I started looking into sleep health and you know, fixing your sleep cycle and stuff like that. Um, and it's actually, so this book, um, has a lot of practical advice um, and I guess the the most important thing I took from it is that um, our bodies are just so very smart so we don't have to so if you if you feel sleep deprived or you there's something that prevents you from from going to bed um, your body makes up for it in a way or another um, it can be through naps it can be through you know slowing down at some point through the day so it's not tragic. And I, I remember feeling, because to me, um, before I developed sleep procrastination, getting eight hours of sleep was absolutely like mandatory, like I really wanted to. Um, and so when I started losing sleep, I felt very scared <laughs> about the consequences, especially on my brain. I just, I was feeling like I could visualize how my brain would get damaged because of it. Um, so reading this book was really enlightening because it just sort of, um, I don't know, it brought me peace in that respect. And then it, like I said, it gives a lot of practical advice. I think the, uh, the best technique I took from it is something about, I call it the blackbird technique. It, it doesn't really have a name, but it's basically mm -hmm. it's a meditation technique where you, you just sit, lay, whatever you want to do and visualize a flock of blackbirds flying around your head and you visualize how you take. So each of them is a negative emotion that you're feeling. You start to visualize uh, picking up every single one of them. So you're coming towards your face, you pick them up, you look it in the eye, and then realize for a split second, you realize what emotion that is. You let it go and you watch it turn white and fly away. Wow. Um, and because my mind is always working, it's always in a rush, there's always stuff going on. And I find it very hard to meditate. So mm -hmm. things like this, like visual visualization is something that really works for me because it really makes me focus on what I want to see. Um, so this was one of the, the main things that I used to to defeat sleep procrastination. So are you now uh, getting the, the eight hours or getting, you know, getting closer to, to what you need? Yeah, I'm getting about six to seven hours, but I definitely don't refuse <laughs> as much to go to bed. I just do. I just go to bed. Yeah, that's good. I think lots of people have talked about their sleep 
changing uh, during the pandemic. Yeah. Is is that something you found during during this period, or was this sort of unrelated? Do you think? So when I developed it, it was before the first lockdown in the UK, but. Because um, I was deprived of my routine when we got into lockdown, I just didn't feel like there was any point for me to try and fight it. Yeah. So throughout the first month or so of lockdown, I just didn't care at all. I messed up my body clock so bad. And eventually I realized I was so angry at myself, at the world, the world, um, everyone around me for no reason. Then I started losing my appetite, which is a big, big red flag for me because I never really lose my appetite no matter how poorly I feel. Um, and that's when I, I thought, right, this needs to change. I can't keep doing this. Sounds like you um, you are you you make good positive decisions for your uh, for your life and your well being. I like it. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying my best. <laughs> like a pro a proper proactive approach. It's good. Yeah. Uh, Self care. That's that. That's the that's the ticket. Um, for my number three. I'm gonna go with. I don't normally. I wouldn't recommend like businessy books. But this is a businessy book, and it was one that was recommended to me as being one that's sort of slightly more tolerable. Um, and so there's a few authors that I think uh, sort of circle around this area that are, are fairly tolerable to read, like Seth Godin and uh, this, this chap, Simon Sinek, um, who uh, his book is uh, The Infinite Game. And as someone who runs a small business and has been kind of, not obsessed but certainly preoccupied with the competition and what other companies are doing and um really like measuring trying to measure my business up against other people this really helped knock that out of me and allowed me to stop and take a much more long view of like what is it that i actually want to do rather than the day-to-day what is it that I actually want to do in my business? And one of the things that it helps you do or encourages you to do is create what it calls a just cause, which is like a really short few word statement that completely crystallizes what you want to do in your goal. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't have to be like a suit and tie business. It could be a charity. It could be an organization. Um, but coming up with this just cause is... Uh, re- uh, sort of a, a way of solidifying that and saying like the day-to-day ways that I might do this stuff could change um, but the overall goal, goal will stay the same so it's like if the internet went away what is my business like what do I actually want to do and that really like it really helps you take that long view and so um, I, I was told about that towards the end of last year and it was just like wow that's that's it's it's been eye opening. So yeah, the infinite game, Simon Sinek. Mm-hmm. We'll keep it in mind. It sounds really cool because you think when you when you're launching a business or you own a business, you think you need to analyze the market, don't you? You need to see who you're up against. Yep. So it's a, it's and you do, approach. but when when you're then running it, um, it it you don't need to always be making decisions that are based purely on what the competition is doing you know um because they may have a short-term interest they might be interested in um getting sold you know getting bought and and selling off really quickly whereas that's not really my thing i'm in in it for a bit of a longer haul and so the decisions that we make are going to be different um and so yeah it's um it's good what is next for you what's number four oh it's a really interesting one so i mean they're all interesting yeah (laughs) um it's called beyond mars and venus um uh, relationship skills for today's complex world by Dr. Ooh. John Gray. Um, and oh my god, this book. Mm, I just finished it. 
uh, and it's it's amazing. So it's about um, more or less it's about couples and and you know having a good happy relationship with your partner. But I actually think it's relevant even if you're not a couple. I think it's relevant just to you know if you have a friend of you know the opposite gender. Um, and what it does is it goes through how men and women react and think in certain situations um, and especially the situations that usually trigger conflict between them so when for instance when a woman is stressed or overwhelmed and she starts talking and talking and talking and the man thinks um, she's blaming him which is really not true um, because women talk when they feel overwhelmed especially or when they feel stressed they talk to refine find their center again they don't talk with a purpose they don't they just want to be listened Mm. They don't need a solution, they can find their solutions. Um, and that's so true. I never really thought about it that way, but it's it's so true. It's something I do, it's something I've noticed a lot of women in my life doing. Uh, whereas with men, obviously, they, they tend to close themselves off when they feel pressure. Um, and again, that's where conflict usually comes in, because you often think you, as the woman in the relationship, you think he's not interested, he's you know ignoring, he's neglecting you, he doesn't you know love you anymore or whatever. And that's just really not true. Apparently, men need time to process um, certain things. Um, it's just, it just made me, I mean, I'm in a long-term relationship and it's, um, we get along pretty well, but we do get, we do clash over things like this. And it was so eye-opening to realize what actually happens when that happens. <laughs> um, and also with my parents as well, I notice it all the time in them. Mm. And it's just, it feels like I have the upper hand. Like now I've read this book, it feels like I'm suddenly... You've got the cheat codes. Yeah, like knowledge is power. Like I suddenly know what's going on and I don't need to get upset about it anymore. Um, that is an amazing just, I, gift when, when you get a book that like helps you sort of find the, those little, the little keys that, that unlock certain bits of understanding and you're like, oh, you're doing that because of this thing. Yeah, that, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's so cool. It's amazing. Oh, that's the, yeah, that's, that's, that's really, uh, that's great. I can imagine that being, uh, so, it, I mean, is it, is it sort of playing, obviously it's playing on the whole, you know, men are from Venus, women are from Mars and, and really leaning into the differences because I guess there are different schools of thought that, you know, certain people say that there isn't a difference. It's a cultural thing, but this, I guess is, is leaning more on, there are, you know, ingrained differences based on how we've been taught to behave, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it's only like it, it also touches on, on gender stereotypes and it, it basically, um, it's more or less, it doesn't really sort of point a finger and saying men are doing this because they're like this and women are doing this because they're like this. It's more like, it, apparently we all have a feminine side and a masculine side and depending on the person and the situation, one of them will shine through. Um, and it's really important to understand that situation and to understand that, you know, the man will need space whereas the woman will need to be listened to. And it's just, again, it's it's really, it's really eye-opening in that respect. Uh, yeah, I can imagine, especially given when you get into that whole issue, and I don't know if it's if it's male, female specific, but that whole issue of someone just wanting to complain, like just needing, like you said, needing to be listened to, and not necessarily looking for someone to solve their problems, but just to listen and commiserate and go, yeah, that sucks, as opposed to, well, have you done this? And, like, that feels across the board. Um, I certainly know I, I feel that, but I've also been 
told that I've done the same thing. You know, I've, I've, I've tried to negate what someone else is saying and that they've actually said, listen, I don't want you to do that. I just want you to say, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> exactly. I like it. Okay, my number four then is very different. Um, so I'm out of the sort of self-help businessy stuff and I'm on to something that is, I think, if you saw this in non, if you saw this in fiction, you wouldn't be surprised. Um, but it's from eighteen something, and it's Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome. All right. Are you familiar with this at all? Um, I am, but I read it so long ago that I honestly can't remember much. <laughs> yeah, it was a long, long time ago for me. Um, so this is the reason it was subtly life changing. I think is because it opened my eyes to a type of because the the way i was introduced to it is so for, for for those that don't know it is a it's a largely sort of fairly bland account of a trip up the thames from like london to oxford or or whatever um but there are some moments that are really funny and they're told and recounted so well that you think this is a comedic book and it's it's not really it's a travelogue but there are just some moments that are really funny and it's it's three men and a, and a dog um and it's i was introduced to it uh i used to do youth theater as a kid and one of the things that we used to do is we used to do this show that we called like a patchwork show and it was readings uh and readings from uh poetry or from pl- bits of plays or from books um interspersed with songs and the music the sort of band leader of of the the theater group is this um older guy who just has one of those voices that's the sort of sonorous british authoritative voice but also is incredibly silly he's one of those you know the sort of graham chapman in monty python who just comes with an air of authority but you know underneath is incredibly silly and so to hear him tell one of these stories in the book was so wonderful and it just it opened my eyes to um a new type of literature that I just I didn't think I didn't know existed I didn't think you could write like that and um so it it had it had a real uh, a real impact for me in in just demonstrating like this whole new thing like when i discovered the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy it's like wow there's this whole genre there's this way that you can be funny that i didn't know was possible and um yeah so very different but um i i wanted i wanted to you know to pop it on the list yeah sounds really cool i, I, I will have to reread it to be honest because it's yeah it's 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 possibly worth another go another go through i think or or at least you know skim through the highlights <laughs> yeah what is number five? So my number five um, is also a little different. It's a memoir. Mm-hmm. Lady in Waiting, My Extraordinary Life in the Shadow of the Crown by Lady Glencona. Okay. I am such a nosy when it comes to the royal family. I just love it. <laughs> I love everything about them. Uh, not necessarily, I guess, the obviously the wealth gap and the institution of the crown itself, um, but the actual... You know what what they do in their daily lives and things like that. Like I just I just really I really like to know about that, and especially for someone who's not even British, I know an awful lot about the royal family. <laughs> and um, so this this book is um, obviously Lady Glenconner's account of what it was like for her to be Princess Margaret's lady in waiting. 
Mm -hmm. um, but it's everything in between as well. It starts from her childhood and, you know, when she was, used to be friends with Princess Margaret and Princess Elizabeth. And um, it's just so, so insightful to see how they were as kids and um, what they used to play. And they were cheeky as well. They were quite cheeky. <laughs> um, I remember this one scene from the book. Um, there's this picture. Um, when they were kids, when Princess Margaret is staring at Lady, Lady Glencorner's shoes, um, and she asks her later in life, why were you staring at my shoes? And she went, well, because you had silver shoes and I had brown ones. <laughs> I don't know, it just sounded so so normal and, and average, and I like that. I like that so much. And I think that's what it was subtly life-changing or more like opinion-changing because we tend to be so cynical when it comes to to wealthy people don't we especially the royals um especially since the uk has so many issues obviously with homelessness and poverty and things like that the thing there are people living in palaces in that country is it's it just feels so unfair so i always used to be a bit cynical as well and i feel like everyone um who isn't the royals or an aristocrat is cynical. Um, but reading this book, first of all, oh my God, the, the writing style, it's so, it's amazing. Um, I don't know if, if Anne Glenconner really is like that in real life, but it felt, she's so, such a diplomat. She's so kind and, and tolerant and nice. Like her husband was such an eccentric. Her husband was such a character and not in a good way. Um, yes, not in a good way at all. And she stayed married to the man for 50 years um, and tolerated his um, breakdowns, I guess you could call them, because they were breakdowns. Right. Okay. Um, like, like such a hero. <laughs> um, I just really admired that. So that in her, the manner. And to be honest, all the royals in, in the book, especially the women, their behaviours um, are just, you really have to learn a lot from that. Um, it's just, it's amazing how they keep their composure, it's, especially the Queen. The Queen is so, um, as presented by, obviously, by Lady Glenconner, I wouldn't know, but she's such a kind and gentle and friendly woman. Um, and you wouldn't have thought about her like that. Um, so yeah, Princess Margaret as well, you sympathize a lot with her. And I feel like a lot of people read this book because just because they wanted a nosy in Princess Margaret's life, because it's a little bit more interesting than obviously the queens and um yeah you, you you sympathize with her a lot but it doesn't really um it doesn't really make you pity her at all uh, like yeah she had quite a sad life she got, had quite a sad passing her marriage was disastrous but she um dealt with it so well i think she still kept you know being funny she kept being friendly she kept being just a normal lady <laughs> and that's again that's very very refreshing because you can relate to them i related to Anne Glencorn on so many levels i couldn't even believe it um and it just makes you it for me it just made me judge them a little bit less it made me sort of think right so princess margaret used to so she had this um this house um in mystique which is uh, lady Glencorn's and her husband's um island private island they offer the house to Princess Margaret there on the on the island. As you do. Yeah, as you do, exactly. Is this there's so many eye rolling moments like that. <laughs> in, in the book. Like there's definitely lots of them. But 
And Princess Margaret used to, to go there like as a little escape uh, when her marriage was kind of falling apart. And, you know, you, th you think there's so many women who are having it a lot worse than Princess Margaret in their marriages, and they can't really run off to a private island for a bit of space. But also, it makes you think, had I been in that situation, would I really have said no? Would I really have said, oh, no, give this house to, I don't know, someone else, and I'm just going to endure? Because it's human nature, isn't it? So it's easy to judge when you're on the outside. And you're so far off from, from the rest of us that you really can't help it. Also, it just really, really gives you so many insights. Like um, Anne Glenn Connor's two eldest sons died quite early. And um, they died because of the very circumstances of their wealth. Wow, okay. Their lifestyle, the extravagance, the, all of that. So it, it makes you think. And there's, there's lots of, of tragedy going on in their lives. And a lot of that tragedy is because of who they are. And that you wouldn't think about it like that, would you? So it's re it really proves that wealth isn't everything, um, you know, social class isn't everything. I, I imagine a book like that, you you really have got to park a lot of preconceptions at the door and just and just try and go in with an open mind. I mean, I, I certainly know I would have to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. Because, I, yeah, I, I don't watch anything like The Crown or any of those programmes um, because it's just, it just yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to to sit through it but i take you're into you know the netflix series and, and that kind of stuff oh, yeah. as well i yeah. love it <laughs> <laughs> so many people are and yeah well okay i'm gonna round us off then with i've got a choice of i've, I've got a choice of two and i think i'm gonna go with the second one of of my two uh and i'll i'll leave i'll leave the other one for an honorable mention um this is going to be a bit of a curveball but i'm going to go with the book on which the famous musical was based. Um, it is Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chenro, and I have never read this book. I will uh, freely attest. But um, it is what inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda, who his name I can never say normally, um, to obviously write, write the musical. And I watched that in, uh, you know, it's one of those I'd heard about it for years. And thought, ah, okay, I can see the appeal. Um, I think I would probably enjoy it. Um, seems a bit of a novelty. And I knew this guy because he's, it, it, it's weird. Like he's a fan of certain podcasts that I listen to and he's appeared on them as, as guests. And so, he, he, you know, he was someone I knew. And then I'd seen him in other things and hadn't realised it was him. And so, he, you know, I thought, well, you know, this is someone I could probably um, enjoy spending a bit of time with. Uh, wouldn't be able to afford going to see the show. Um down in London, you know, tickets were so expensive and all that stuff. But when Disney Plus released the original cast film, I thought, oh, well, this is the perfect opportunity. Get to see the original cast. It's, you know, going to be filmed really well. And, and so I sat down and I was, like, moved in such a, like, fundamental way by this. <laughs> not the, not necessarily the story, because the story is what it is, but the skill and the talent that went into the production um everything from the writing and the performances to the music and the and the lighting the staging the choreography that you know um and the emotion that that it all that it all gives you and also how well it was directed and and put on screen um but i i sort of came away just like shell shocked and i remember I spoke to a few people about this i remember <laughs> at one point i can't remember which but it was 
but I was almost angry at how good this one segment was. And I was just sat at my TV and I just went, fuck off! Because I was just, I was almost like angry. Like, how dare this be that clever and that good? I know, I know the feeling. <laughs> and, and, and it was... Yeah, and, and, and obviously, you know, it changed not just uh, Manuel Miranda's life, but, but many people, um, m- many people's lives, and, and certainly mine now, because um, it's something, I've watched it now, I must, I've watched it four times, I've listened to the, uh, to the soundtrack several times, um, I, and every time it gets me in different ways, and um, and so I think, you know, it's it's not going to make our final list, but I, I I have to give it a mention because um, it's you know it's inspired one of the greatest things to come out of anywhere in a long time. So there you go. That's my TED talk. <laughs> so this is Eliza, and uh, thank you to Eliza. And sorry about the uh, audio quality. That's just a thing that happens sometimes. Um, so yes, uh, what's going on? Uh, apologies for the lateness of this episode. Uh, that is entirely down to me and being a little bit on the busy side. A couple of couple of Sundays, which kind of uh, put paid to uh, to things. Um, the uh, couple of Sundays ago, it was my birthday, and there was a whole thing about that. Um, and then last Sunday. Uh, which is Sundays uh, are usually my uh, my editing days uh, for this podcast, and uh, Sunday this this Sunday um, was Mother's Day, and so there was you know there were there were things there that that needed to be attended to. I'm lucky enough uh, to be uh, as as a, as a uh, man who lives on his own. Uh, I my my particular bubble is uh, is a parental one, so I was able to go and see my mother on on Mother's Day, um, and I know not everybody gets that uh, privilege. Uh, if, if if it is a privilege for you um uh, so yes um uh and then the, the day before i had a sort of anxiety attack halfway through a shopping trip um so i certainly wasn't in the mood to come back and then edit a podcast uh this is the this is the life the, the reason i bring it up you know the, uh, this is the the covid life um <laughs> as we know it right now um these are things that uh, that we have to contend with but Hopefully, it won't be for much longer because uh, we have the green shoots of recovery, um, to quote um, someone I perhaps shouldn't. Anyway, it's quite enough of that. Um, if you uh, like this show and you would like to tell other people about it, uh, I would be indebted to you if you would go to refer.fm slash list envy. Uh, and if you do that, uh, you get a special link that you can pass to your friends. And if you... Uh, sign up five friends to follow the podcast, uh, you might get a thing from me. Uh, details are on the website, refer.fm slash list envy. And uh, that aside, you will find links to everything we discussed, including links to all the books uh, that we've talked about on this episode at listenvypod.com. They are also in your app of choice as well. So uh, let us return. Oh, a uh, quick uh, note is that next week we are talking biopics. That's myself and Aaron Conway. Uh, and as ever, thank you to Stuart Parker for uh, doing doing the Lord's work in, um, in finding great guests to have lovely conversations with. Uh, so thank you again to Stuart. Uh, so we will return then to uh, my, my discussion with Elisa and um, our list of subtly life-changing non-fiction books. We now have the, the difficult task of seeing if we can combine our lists into a definitive top five. Now, I've had a crack at this 
um, as we've been talking, and I, I will I will read you my my possible list, my draft, and you can you can pick it apart and see see what changes we need to make. Um, right. So from five to one, I've gone the chimp paradox, um, beyond Mars and Venus, how to sleep well, self compassion, and then ikigai, because um, yeah, well that's that's. That's my initial alpha. Would you like to make a counter offer? Um, right. I'm. It's. It sounds really good, to be honest. Uh, I really. Um, I really like the sound of your business book, but I think that's a bit niche, isn't it? Uh, well, I've. 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 Yeah. I. I, I didn't want to put them on the list. I, I. think. I think they're good honourable mentions, but I think what we've got here, it's stuff that can apply to anyone, really. I would switch. Jim Paradox with uh, Beyond Mars and Venus. Ah, okay. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Okay, well, in in that case then, here we go. From five to one, Beyond Mars and Venus, The Chimp Paradox, How to Sleep Well, Self-Compassion and Icky Guy. Uh, Elisa Litsa, do you consent to this list? I do, yes. Then we have an accord. When you were coming up with your, your top five, were there any that didn't make the list that you thought deserve a mention yes so there is this this one book um and it didn't make the list simply because it's a book by a romanian author i'm not too sure it has been translated and it's um more or less interesting just if you're romanian um if there are romanian listening mm-hmm. <laughs> um it's called uh why romania is different and it's written by lucian boya it's a book about basically the stigma around Romania and the Romanian culture mm. and uh, basically if you're if you're Romanian um, you have this feeling you have this constant feeling that there's something wrong something is, is wrong something is different we are always behind we are always something bad is always happening to us um, and it's a sort of a, a constant um, agreement between Romanians everywhere that it's it's because something is different <laughs> Wow. And basically, uh, the author, he's a historian, and he picks apart the Romanian culture from when, back when the country was basically formed, uh, back when the Romans conquered this territory. And um, it sort of analyzes um, everything from culture, traditions, um, our customs, habits, everything. Our royal family is German and a couple of other nationalities, but there's no Romanian in our royal family. Um, and things like that. So it's it's all down to the fact that a lot of our our culture and history is based on foreign influences and foreign people. And what we have that is exclusively ours is not a lot. Um, so it it really does make you think. It, it kind of I guess it it puts a base to that that general feeling that we're different and something needs to change. And it kind of offers a cause to an effect and then if you have the cause you can think about a solution so it's it's amazing it's one of the best books i've ever read to be honest my uh the the one that i swapped out was a bit again it was not businessy but it, it tends to be one that is uh, offered around uh, businessy type people who who maybe have a sense of loftiness or they want to do something big and it's um it's called The Second Mountain, and uh, it is by David Brooks. Um, the subtitle is The Quest for a Moral Life, and um, it sort of proposes that you have two moments, two big mountains in your life, and most of us 
uh, find our, our first mountain, uh, which is about career and attainment and finding out who you are um, and, and figuring out like what you can get for yourself. And then you hit a valley where some kind of event happens. And then I think typically around your 30s into 40s, which I guess is where the sort of midlife crisis idea maybe comes from, you start to come up again into your second mountain where you your life then becomes around purpose and becomes around service and, and how you can be of service to others. And um, he he says sort of early on that, that people come to this in very different times in their life it's it's not always the same the same time some people can can have it early in life um and it's to do with a, an event that happens uh, a moment that puts you into this valley where you suddenly sort of reevaluate what's important and what you want to do and then you you sort of you start with a second mountain and uh i think i was recommended the book at around the right time and so it's sort of it's one that i i quite like there's a bit too much as a, with a few of these kind of books, there's a bit too much religion in it for me. But um, there's that aside. Um, it's I think I think it's worth a read if that kind of stuff you know is of interest. Yeah, definitely sounds really good. But I think we've got ourselves uh, a very good list. Um, uh, Elisa, please tell us where uh, we can um, find out more about you and what you do and follow your work. So most of my work nowadays is on Medium um, at um, Elisa Dashlitzer, and that's where I write um, pretty much every day. I, I try to get something published pretty much every day. Um, and on Twitter, that's where I'm most active, um, and that's at Lita underscore Elisa. Um, I don't really, I'm not really big into social media, so, uh, so those are the two platforms where I'm usually most active. Um, and yeah. Otherwise, the Meridian magazine as well, because I'm a Europe editor for them, and sometimes I contribute articles as well. Um, so some of my work is is there as well. Wonderful, Elisa. This has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I feel subtly life changed. So um, thank you for being on List Envy. Likewise, thank you for, so much for having me. Mm-hmm.